Alyssa was talking about going to a, a mission on a mission trip to Spain, and one of the things we discovered when we got to Spain is that the area of Spain is, I hate to say it this way, but it's been over-evangelized. And what I mean by that is they've seen so many people come through and try to do evangelism that they've kind of, it, they're hardened to it. It's like they've stopped listening. And there are a lot of places in the world, there might be places right here in Oklahoma where they have a little bit of what you want to call it's just, we've heard it so long that we've got the gospel hardened thing where I'm not listening anymore unless you can really amaze me, unless you can really entertain me, unless you can tell me a tear-jerking story or maybe a great big funny story, I'm not even going to pay attention to you because I've heard it all before. And there are places in the world like that. You know, you just don't expect people not to be interested in the greatest story ever told. You don't expect people to not be listening when you're talking about somebody rising from the dead. But we've gotten to that place in many areas of the world, in many parts even of the United States, where church has become more about entertainment. And I think we've lost something in doing that. And so I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Not that I'm mad at anybody or anything, even though I may sound a little angry today. Um, Trust me, I'm not. Um, But I want you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to finish Mark chapter 7 this morning. Mark chapter 7, we're going to be in verse number 31. And I want to read you this this entire section right quick, just to get it in front of us. Because Jesus is going to go back into a place that has been evangelized, and he's going to see some of the the fruit that's there from that. So Mark chapter number 7, verse 31 and following. You read read along as I read aloud here. Verse 31 begins this way. And again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they entreated him to lay his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself and put his fingers into the ears, his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Now, again, we've, we, we followed Jesus up into the northern part of Palestine, all the way up to the, the seacoast city of Tyre and Sidon, that area up in there. Remember what happened last week? The, the, the woman whose, whose little daughter was cruelly possessed by a demon, and, and Jesus met with her, and, and she was a woman of great faith, and we, we saw what happened there. Well, now Jesus comes back down into the area of, of Judea, but instead of going to Capernaum or the, the side of the Nazareth side of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, he goes over to the other side, which would have been the eastern shores, into what we call the Decapolis. Now, who do we know that would have gone and talked to the folks in the Decapolis? Well, not many weeks ago, we talked about that man who was the Gadarene demoniac. And you remember, he was the one who had the legion of demons, and they were cast into the, the pigs. The pigs committed suicide. And uh, then the man was found clothed in his right mind, wanting to go with Jesus. And if you remember what happened, Jesus said, No, no, you don't get to come with me. You go tell everybody what great things God has done for you. And so this man, this one who was the former demoniac, went first to the town he was in and then to the entire area of the Decapolis telling what Jesus had done. So this Jesus, when he came into the Decapolis, this was the Jesus who took care of the man who had the legion of demons. 
They had heard of him. He had been, this area had been evangelized. Now, what we know about the Decapolis is it was a mixed area by now. There were Jewish people here, but it was predominantly Gentile or uh, Samaritan even. They had heard about Jesus, though. And so when they heard he was coming, it was, wow, let's go see the wonder worker. Let's go see this one who could take care of this demon-possessed man because maybe, maybe he could take care of our friend who is deaf. Now, it doesn't, Scripture doesn't give us the man's name. I've kind of played with it. What I might call him is Old Deaf Joe or old, maybe his name was Zephaniah, so they called him uh, Old Deaf Zach. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't, if I say a name like that, please don't. I'm not making fun of anybody. It's just that they had a friend. And he had a need. And here came Jesus. Maybe Jesus, the same Jesus who could drive out the legion of demons, could help this man that, that we know who is deaf. So verse 31 tells us about him coming back into the Decapolis. Well, verse 32 says someone, it says the word they there in the, in the text, some people brought to him this man. Now, this man was deaf. He could not have heard about Jesus. They may have given him some kind of signs. They may have written it down. Probably not. He may not have even known what they were doing when they took off heading to to go to Jesus. But it says that uh, they brought him to Jesus. He may not have even known what was going on. He might have been one of those people they say, hey, we need to work in the field. Let's go get old deaf Zach, and he'll help us out, and at the end of the day, we'll pay him. He'll be glad to get the work. Or let's go get him and take him to the marketplace. He probably needs to buy some stuff. It was one of those things where he might have just gone along, but it was they, that is the people who brought him, that asked for the healing. It wasn't this man. They brought him to Jesus. And I want you to pay special attention to that word brought there. Brought to Jesus. And again, I asked the question, did he even know about Jesus? Did he know, was he coming expecting to be healed? As far as I can tell, probably not. Was he expecting to be ministered to at all? That I can tell, maybe not. And really, as I look at that, as them bringing him to Jesus, it kind of echoes that same uh, event that we saw over there in Mark chapter 2, where the, the people, the friends, brought the man who was crippled. You remember the man who was, who was in the pallet? He couldn't get to Jesus. And they broke open the roof, and they put him down right there in the midst, right in front of Jesus. It kind of has the same idea. They brought him. Okay, well, the difference, though, is when you see that story there in Mark chapter 2, Jesus, it says, he looked up and he saw their faith. And he immediately said, son, your sins are forgiven. You remember that part of the story. Well, in this particular event, there's never a mention of belief. There's never a mention of faith. There's never a mention of trust. There was just this desperation. They implored him. They begged him. They they asked him, Jesus, would you put your hand on him? Because they knew something about Jesus that he could drive out those demons. We'd heard other stories about him. Jesus, would you put your hand on him? And by the way, take a look. Jesus never put his hand on him. He didn't do it the way they wanted him to. That's an interesting point, and we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But they said, Jesus, we want... They came to the prophet or this miracle worker in hope, in in desperation, maybe in expectation. They brought this man to the one who could take care of that demon-possessed man. And they had seen the demon-possessed man with his life turned completely around. And so they wanted to see that for their friend. And whether they were motivated, motivated by faith or genuine belief, what I want to see is that these folks can teach us a thing or two. They can teach us a thing or two about building the church. They can teach us a thing or two about encountering Jesus. They can teach us a thing or two about compassion for the needy. Because they did not just simply hope that their friend could meet Jesus. You know, a lot of times we have compassion on people and we think, well, I hope somebody does something about that. They didn't just stop at hoping that their friend could meet Jesus someday. 
They didn't just plan for him. You know what we'll do? We'll make sure the next time Jesus comes through town that he gets a flyer so he can go down there if he wants to. They didn't do that. They could have, but that's not all they did. They didn't even do this. They could have said, well, we'll just pray for you, brother. We'll pray that God sets up a divine encounter and one of these days... They didn't do just that. You know, sometimes we, we think of that, our friends that way. We, we think, well, I know that I can invite him to church this week because we're doing a, a, a bluegrass concert, and he's a bluegrass guy. He'll come if we have a bluegrass concert. So I'll wait until he, he, you know, he gets something that's a special service is going to really get in his wheelhouse. No, they didn't do any of that stuff. They brought him. Again, I don't know whether he knew what was going on or not. They just went and got him. Whether he expected this, whether he wanted it, whether he understood anything, the people, that is the friends, saw the need of their friend and they were willing to put in the effort, they were willing to put in the follow-through, they were willing to make sure he got to Jesus. In fact, it reminds me of another parable Jesus told. There was a a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 14 about a king who put on a wedding feast for his son. And he told his servants, okay, go tell everybody that the feast is ready, get them to come, it's time for them to come to the wedding feast. And, and the servants went out to say, okay, it's time to come. And without exception, those that were invited started to make excuses. The first one said, oh, you know what? I bought some property. i got to go take a look at it. Just put me down as excused. Somebody else said, well, I bought six, six yoke of oxen. I go out and prove them. Put me down as excused. Another one said, I got married and I can't come. You remember that part? And then all of a sudden, the, the servants come back and say, Master, nobody's coming to your dinner. And so the, the king, the master said, well, you go out there and you go and you invite everybody. It doesn't even matter if they're the people I've invited before. Just bring it in. I want my house to be full. And they went out and they invited a bunch of people and they got some trickling in. And finally they went back to the master and said, Lord, we've done everything you commanded us to do and there's still a lot of room. And so Jesus said this. Put that verse up there, Zerubbath, in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 23. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. I love that word, compel. I mean, that's, you can, the word we like to use is invite. We like to use, we can attract them. You know, we'll be doing, doing something that's exciting. The, the folks who want to come to a car show, a uh, craft show, nothing wrong with those, but somehow we want to compel them to come in. You may do that by talking to them, by dropping a line, by the way you put stamps on those, by picking them up and bringing them to church, calling them, writing them, or, you know, whatever. Visit, whatever it takes, compel them to come in. We've talked ourselves out of that in 21st century America. You know what? We don't want to be a nuisance. So I invited them once back in 97. If they want to come, they'll come. I don't want to be a nuisance. Or we say this to ourselves, you know what? It's just, you know, people don't like pushy Christians. And I've invited them before, and they just, I don't want to act like I'm pushy because they act like I'm being mean to them, and I just don't want to be pushy. What would be, well, how about this? This is the one that really kills me. I don't want to offend anybody. Which would be more offensive? To look at your friend and say, I really want you to come to church. I really want you to come to Jesus because I love you so much I don't want to see you in hell. Or to say, you know what, I don't care if you go to hell. If it means I offend you or you go to hell, I'd rather just go to hell. Nobody thinks that way, but we act that way. When we don't put in the effort and be willing to compel them there is nothing more compassionate. There's nothing more loving. There's nothing more caring, caring than to bring them to Jesus. See, what we've done is we've come to believe, well, it's like this. 
This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine silently. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. As long as it doesn't offend anybody. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine until the world tells me to be silent. So what we do is we get way over here in a corner somewhere where nobody can be offended. Let it shine, let it shine. And the devil laughs because he knows he's won. Across this world, I'm here to tell you that there are multiplied millions that would never have come to Christ if someone hadn't come and brought them to Jesus. And I can tell you I'm one of them. Nothing more loving, caring, and compassionate than to compel them. Because listen, only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can meet the deepest need. Only Jesus can break their chains. So whether this man had faith, whether his friends had belief, is, is kind of immaterial. Because when they got the man to Jesus, he moved in compassion. When they got to Jesus, he moved with power. He moved them away from the crowd. That's the other thing that's kind of odd about this. One of the, the strangest things about this whole thing is that Jesus led the man aside. Let me read that in verse 33, the first little bit. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself. Jesus took the man into a private moment, like personal ministry. He took this, and what he did really was he took the man away from the center of attention. Because the friends had brought him right there to Jesus. Everybody's watching. What's going to happen now? Can you put your hand on him? And Jesus, seeing what was going on, he took the man, led him off the stage of public attention, led him off of the center of public recognition. And again, that's kind of unusual. Because Jesus had never, he was never reluctant to, to show God's power. He was never shy about display of, displays of God's power. In fact, the displays of God's power often accompanied the ministry of Jesus. And the displays of God's power approved and announced the, uh, the, uh, the ministry of Jesus. Even, even showed that, that this is who the Messiah really is. John the Baptist said, Hey, I'd like to know, are you really the one that's coming or do we look for another? And Jesus performed some three or four or five signs and said, Tell John what you just saw. Because it was all the signs in the Old Testament that said Messiah would do this and the gospel would be preached to the poor. So it was a little bit unusual, so why this time? Is there a reason? And I think there's a very pertinent reason that I want to get to at the very end to tie this all together, of why Jesus took him aside like he did. But through this, as Jesus pulled him aside, what is Jesus teaching us in 21st century America? There's a couple of things I think are very important. First thing I think Jesus is teaching us is this. Never be afraid to do your good deed in secret. In other words, you don't have to go and play a horn and say, Hey, everybody, look at me. Here I am. I'm doing something really great for God. When you're doing what you are called to do for the Lord, it is not a quest for credit. Doing what you're going to do for the Lord, what God's created you and enabled you to do, is never a quest for recognition. It's never a quest for applause. And there's nothing wrong with applause in church to give glory to God. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But listen, if you're doing what you're doing for God in seeking of applause, if you're looking for credit, if you're looking for some kind of recognition, guess what? When you receive that recognition of men, that's all you're going to get. Because when you seek the applause of men, you give up the applause of heaven. It's a long-standing, well-understood Old Testament principle, New Testament principle. Uh, Solomon said it in the book of Proverbs, let another man praise you and not your own lips. In the New Testament, Jesus said, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. 
So understand, it's okay to do your acts of service, your good deeds, with nobody ever finding out. It's okay to do those in private. Second thing Jesus is teaching us here is that Jesus was willing to change it up. He was never locked up in one tradition or habit. Even the method of healing we're going to see is very unique here in just a moment. But my point right now is that Jesus took the man, well, he took care of the man in the way the man needed. And mighty results were, were, were seen. And my question for us today is, are we seeing mighty results in our serving? Are we seeing mighty results when we're attempting to meet needs? Are we seeing mighty results? Are we seeing lives changed? Well, let me, let me ask it to you this way. Jesus demonstrating this. Are we willing to do things we have never done in order to see results we've never seen? That's a really good question to ask yourself. You know, one of the, the well-known definitions of insanity is doing the same thing the same way over and over and expecting different results. If you're a salesman and you keep trying to sell something and it's not working, maybe you need to change your manner of salesmanship. Maybe you need to get a different product. Depends on the product sometimes. But you can't keep doing it the same way, expecting different results. And I know this thing for certain as a church, as an individual, as families, doing what we've always done, doing things we always did, will bring the results we've always got. So it, if we want wonderful, powerful, supernatural results, we are going to need to change some things individually. If you want to see wonderful, powerful, supernatural results corporately as a church, we may need to change some things. If we want to see things institutionally change across our entire nation, there are going to have to be some things that change if we want to see those wonderful, powerful, and supernatural results. Well, how much change are we talking about? Well, this was a healing unlike anything we have recorded anywhere else in Scripture. Now, Jesus healed thousands and thousands of people. He may have done this exact same thing somewhere else, but this is the only place we have it recorded. And he healed in a very unique method. He not only took the man aside, you know, out of the spotlight to deal with him privately, but nowhere else in Scripture do we find Jesus putting his fingers in someone's ears. Now, he probably did it from, you know, he's looking at the man, puts his hands on his face, or how, however he did it. I don't think it was like this. It was his, put his fingers in his ears. Nowhere else in Scripture did Jesus spit on his, and touch the man's tongue. That was the only place in Scripture. And nowhere else do we find Jesus looking up to heaven and then commanding that they be open, that ifatha that we see there in verse number 34. So it was a three-step process. Never before, never recorded after that, but he met this man at the point, exactly at the point of his need. Aren't you glad that our Father in Heaven is not a cookie-cutter God? Aren't you glad that He loves each one of us uniquely? Because I can guarantee you, I know Ron McGar, and he's unique. I know Ron Cleveland, Don Cleveland. I think I know him. <laughs> Got his name right the second try. He's unique! All of us, aren't you glad that He loves us uniquely and individually? And then as we need things, He meets us uniquely at the point of our need. And I can't even tell you how many miracles this man had. I know this particular man, he was deaf and he had a speech impediment. So that means when Jesus opened his ears, that was a miracle he can now hear. When Jesus loosed his tongue, it, doesn't, it says he had a speech impediment, he loosed his tongue. Maybe he might have had one of those things in his mouth that had to be, you know, some people have to have clipped before they can talk clearly. But regardless, maybe that wasn't the point. Maybe it's just you've heard people who are deaf trying to talk and they've learned enough of the, the, the sounds and the noises through bone induction that they can, they can begin to talk a little bit. Well, whichever way it was, it says there when in verse 35, he began speaking plainly. 
he began speaking a language he had never actually heard clearly and plainly. That's a supernatural thing too. All of a sudden, he had vocabulary he'd never had before. I don't know how many healings there were, but I know that every need he had, Jesus met. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is no respecter of persons. He'll meet you at the point of your need today, just as he met the needs of this man. He'll do the same thing for you. Because no one is so bad that Jesus won't meet them right at the point of your need. No one, by the way, also is so good that you don't need Jesus to meet you at the point of your need. But I can tell you, no matter your brokenness, Jesus can meet you at the point of that need. No matter your impediment, Jesus can meet you at the point of that need. And if you sit here and you say, well, you just don't understand my sin, He does. And no matter your sin, no matter your backsliding, He can meet you at the point of your sin. He can rescue you any way He needs to. He can rescue you. He can release you. Whatever the chain, He can release you. He can renew you, even from spiritual death. Renewal is available. He can do it any how he needs to, any time he needs to, any one he needs to. But we leave all that up to Jesus. I mean, listen, I believe in miracles. You can't read the Bible and not believe in miracles. But I put my faith and trust in Jesus, in Christ alone. So in verse 36, we see after the, the healing's taken place there in verse 35, Jesus commanded them not to tell. Now, it's interesting to me. I think, if you didn't want anybody to know, why did you heal him? I mean, I've, I've asked that myself, that question, a bunch of times in Scripture. Jesus tells them not to tell. Of course, it didn't work, because the more they, he told them, the more they said it. But why would he heal if he didn't want them to know? Well, Jesus did this out of his character of love and compassion. Jesus healed the man out of the fact that he's just filled with mercy and grace. Jesus healed the man. For Sometimes Jesus would heal demonstrating a point. You might see places where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he opens someone's blind eyes. Or he says, I'm the bread of life, and then he feeds 5,000 people. You know, sometimes he did it for that reason. He was performing a sign in fulfillment of his words. But oftentimes, when Jesus would heal someone, he did it at the request of someone else. Someone willing to cry out in behalf of someone else, God moved in response to their request. This act of healing was a mixture of all of those. And I think the same reasons should compel us to cry out to God, to bring our friends to Jesus. Those same reasons that I just mentioned, His full of compassion, His mercy, and His grace, His, His willingness to do it for those that will cry out, that should impel us and encourage us and empower us to cry out to God. I want to be praying that my loved ones are saved. I want to be praying that my loved ones, my friends, and my neighbors are comforted in their times of loss and hurt. I want to be praying that God would even heal my sister that lays there in that hospital bed. But I can tell you, Jesus never did His healing, never did His ministry and His work as a sideshow act for entertainment. Jesus was never looking for applause or notoriety, and so He commanded them not to tell. Who was the them He was telling? Well, the man, He would know about it. The friends, they were definitely going to know about it. The crowd, some of them would have got to see it. He told them all, don't mention this. By the way, have you ever used that term where somebody says, thank you, and you say, don't mention it? I'm, I'm of the opinion this is where that comes from. It's copying the Lord Jesus because, hey, he said don't mention it. I don't want anybody to know about that. I didn't do this for notoriety. Don't mention it. But, of course, they couldn't hold it in. I love that in verse 30. Six, it says, the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. One translation says, they went out and zealously proclaimed it. And I think I can understand that. Because this was a life-altering event. You see a life-altering event, even if it wasn't your life that was altered, you might be willing and ready to tell somebody about it. 
I mean, it's, it's hard not to talk about it. You meet somebody, hey, tell me about your life. Well, I'll tell you, I used to be blind, but then I met this man named Jesus, and now I can see. You know, if you're talking to an ex-blind man, that's liable to come up. If you're talking to somebody, hey, hey, tell me about your life. Well, I used to be crippled. I used to be all shriveled up, and I had to be on a pallet all day long. But one day some friends let me down through a hole, and all of a sudden Jesus was there, and I was able to stand up. I can tell you that if you meet the ex-cripple, he might mention the fact. Okay? I understand that. You, like the woman at the well. Come meet the man that told me everything I ever did. It's liable to happen. Well, that being the case, that being the fact... Why is it that so many believers today, why is it that so many followers today, I'm talking about why are so many church members today not zealously proclaiming their faith, the change in their own lives? Why are we not compelling them to come? Why aren't we bringing our friends to Jesus? Is it because we've stopped being astonished? Take a look at verse 37 as we finish up here. Verse 37. And they were utterly astonished. They were amazed beyond measure, one of the older translations says. They were astonished. You know what's happening in so many churches today? They go to church and it's all God's people said, eh. Been there, done that, seen that. Eh. These people were constantly being amazed because they were seeing God work. They were seeing God move. They were seeing God change lives. And what it means when it says utterly astonished, that translates into 21st century talk. They were so blown away that it changed everything about the rest of their life. And friend, that's what salvation is supposed to do for us. It changes everything about the rest of our lives. This deaf man, he had a totally new normal. Every moment when he heard a cricket. Can you imagine that for the first time? What is that? It's a bug. Here's a dog bark for the first time. Somebody calls him to dinner. That'd be something to be thankful about, wouldn't it? I can hear him calling me for dinner. Everything he had was a gift. There was once a day when I was deaf, and now I can hear. Well, I'm here to tell you that we have a testimony. I once was dead in my sins and trespasses, but now I'm born again. I have life forevermore. Well, the question really is, can anybody else see that? Can somebody else tell in your life? What in our life might make somebody else say, wow, that's astonishing? What in our church might make the passing world say, that's astonishing? What in our experience would be astonishing? What is astonishing? We see it there. These friends, the crowd, they were astonished. And the rest of verse 37, it says, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. They were astonished. Now, this is the sad part about that astonishment. There's still no mention of belief. Still no mention of faith. Still no mention of acceptance. They had seen it, but they weren't yet across the faith finish line, if you will. And they were understandably impressed. I mean, but the reaction, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but the reaction as you read it there sounds a little bit more like a sportscaster or a game show host. They brought the man to Jesus. Could you put your hand on him? He said, no, I've got to do it a different way. They took, Jesus took care of them. And so what? Hey, look, he's done all things well. Let's have a big hand for Jesus. Yeah. That's what it looks like. He makes the deaf to hear. Let's give it up for Jesus. Yeah, but there's no mention of belief, no mention of faith. I mentioned earlier, I, I think I know why Jesus took specifically the man out of the center, and I think it's this reason. Those friends brought that deaf man to Jesus for the entertainment of watching him be, be, be healed, for the entertainment of seeing a miracle, to see the prophet at work, a big round of applause, to see the wonder worker and be amazed. And Jesus didn't do that. He was not there to amaze 
the crowd. He was there to minister to the hurting. And some were going to understand. After all, the next chapter, chapter 8, is when Simon Peter is asked, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says in chapter 8, thou art the Christ. And so some of them were coming to it. But let me close with this. And this is for all of us. God wants us to be astonishing. God wants you to be astonishing. God wants our church to be astonishing. He wants His working in and through us to be astonishing to this world. He wants us to be a source. of a, Somebody to be saying, wow, look at something amazing is going on down there in those followers of Jesus. And make no mistake, we, not me, we, will be the ones God uses to astonish our area. Or, or we'll be the ones sitting on our hands while God uses someone else to astonish our area. Or the enemy comes and snatches away all those that were our responsibility to astonish. There's those three possibilities. We'll be the ones that God uses. If you're a part of this church, if you're a part of God's family, if you're a part of some small group somewhere in a Sunday school class, God has a part for you to play in that Sunday school class, that small group, in that family, in that church. And He may have shaped you not to be a preacher. He may not have shaped you to be a missionary. He may have shaped you to be a prayer. You say, well, all I know how to do is pray. Then get with it, sister. Get with it, brother. Be the prayer that God called you to be. You say, hey, I'll... I, I think I could sing, but I think there's probably somebody else could do it better. God may have shaped you specifically to be a singer or a teacher or a helper or a leader or an encourager. And this is what we do. We say, you know, Brother Robert, I could probably teach that class. I could probably teach that class, but you know what? I thought somebody else could do it better. You, just, you know, there's somebody else could do it better, so I'm just going to. And what we do is we sit on our hands waiting for this mysterious somebody better to show up. God... You know, and it's kind of a grain of truth because after all, we want to be humble and we want to realize that we're not all the best. You're, you're not the best. But aren't you glad Kelton didn't tell us that? Sit on his hands and say, oh, you know, somebody better is coming along. Yeah, somebody else could have come along, but Chris Tomlin was busy, so God gave us Kelton. <laughs> Same thing with preachers sometimes. You know, they're called to ministry. They're called to do this, do that. Hey, you know, somebody else could do that better. Yeah, you could, but Billy Graham's probably busy this week. Why don't you take care of it? God called and sent us you to do what only you can do in this family, in this congregation, in this church. And we're cheating ourselves. We're cheating our church. We're cheating our community. We cheat everybody out of God's blessing that can come through us while we sit on our hands waiting for that mysterious someone. If FBC Cole, if this church ever astonishes, it's not going to be through some hot new preacher. It's going to be through all of us. It's not going to be through some great paint job. It's going to be through all of us. It's not going to be through some lovely new poetry, a great new song. It's going to be Jesus by His Spirit working through each one of us. Us, us ordinary folks doing the extraordinary because the extraordinary God within us is the only one who can do it anyway. No way you can prepare enough to do the supernatural, but the supernatural Jesus is already here to do it through you. Some of us sit here in this, this morning, and, 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 and I, it's hard for me to say this, but I, I've got to. It is possible to be a part of a church and never to have come to faith. Just like it's possible for those friends who brought their friend to have never even believed in Jesus. They just were there just for the show. It's possible for some of us to be caught in that same trap where we're not really across the faith finish line. 
I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure, but you haven't really surrendered your life. You haven't admitted you were a sinner. You haven't believed that Jesus died for you. You haven't confessed him as Lord and Savior of your life. And if that's you, I pray this day that this will be the day of salvation for you. But for most of us, what we really need to do is surrender to God's Spirit and say to the Lord, here am I, send me. Say to the Savior, Lord, enable me, because he's already here to do it. Lord, encourage me, because he's already here to do it. Lord, empower me. Me? Yeah. He wants to use you. He wants to use us as a church. So maybe this morning we need to say once again to the Savior, Lord, here am I. You saved me. Empower me, and I'll serve you. Let's pray. Thank you.